Hello, everyone. My name is James. I'm one of the pastors here at Willingdon, and I just want to say welcome here. It's my privilege today to lead us in the study of God's Word. We're continuing our sermon series that we're calling Open and Unashamed. It's a summer series in the book of Psalms. And so if you have your Bible, why don't you turn with me now to Psalm chapter 34. Uh, Psalms is nice because it's right kind of near the middle of the Bible. So as you turn to Psalm 34, let me just open with a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity now to open your word together. God, we thank you that even after all these years that your church can still sing these psalms of praise to you. And so God, now as we turn to Psalm 34, I pray you open our eyes to see things we've never seen, to understand more of who you are, more of who we are, so that we can worship and praise you with everything that we have. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Growing up in our house, we used to call my grandfather on my mom's side, Opa. Now, Opa is just the Dutch way of saying grandpa. And one of the things I love most about my Opa was that my Opa was a musician. Uh, He played basically every musical instrument that you can think of. Uh, He used to play the organ. He even had a pipe organ in his basement at one point. Uh, He played the piano. He played the violin. He played the trombone and the trumpet, the flute, the clarinet. Basically, if you gave my Opa an instrument, he would probably be, be able to play it very well or at least figure out how to play it quite quite soon after you gave it to him. My Opa was also great at music theory. Uh, One of the things that he did was he arranged beautiful pieces of music, and then he was a conductor. He had a band, he had a choir, and he would conduct these songs in concerts that were played around Canada, but also sometimes even around the world back in Holland. Uh, My Opa was truly gifted musically in a lot of ways. Like I said before, though, Opa is the Dutch way of saying grandpa. And my Opa... Uh, unsurprisingly then, grew up in the Netherlands. He grew up in Holland. And so one of the neat things about this was that for my Opa, a lot of the songs that he loved the most were actually songs he learned in his childhood that were Dutch songs. Uh, Dutch songs, Dutch hymns, songs that he learned and sung with his family and in, in his church. And so one of the projects that my Opa worked on later in his life was a project where he thought, let me combine and compile all these songs that I love so much. And let me translate them into English to be enjoyed by the future generation. And so that's what he did. He started this work of compiling these songs, of translating them, of putting them to music and giving a songbook to be used by the next generation. The last time I was at my parents' place in Ontario, I was able to kind of look through this songbook and to see all the songs that he had translated. And I was just thankful for the work that he had done in making these songs available to, to me, a person who doesn't speak Dutch, to be able to worship God with these songs for future generations. I'm thankful for the work that my Opa has done. And I think when we come to the book of Psalms, we should also be thankful in a similar way. Because when we come to the book of Psalms, we're looking at a group of songs that have been sung by God's people for generation after generation. If you think about it, the Psalms have been the songbook of God's people for literally thousands of years. And not only have they been translated into English, they've been translated into countless languages so that we can worship God and praise God in our own mother tongues. We owe translators of the Bible a debt of gratitude to make this possible for us. Now, translation is difficult to begin with, 
right? If you talk to anyone who does translation for our services, they'll talk about the challenges that come from translating from one language to another. Uh, I'm sure some of you know how to do this well. Others of you uh, don't. But translation is, is difficult to begin with. But when you're translating songs or poetry, it becomes even that much more difficult. Because when you look at songs and poetry, not only are you translating content, not only are you trying to get across a message of what's being said, you're also looking at things like the form of the language. You're looking at things like the beauty and the, the way that the language is constructed. And sometimes those things are much harder to get across from one language to the next. Sometimes it's, it's fairly straightforward and you can do it without much of a hiccup. Other times it's really challenging Sometimes it's almost next to impossible to translate from one language to another without losing something in translation. And we see examples of all of those things in Psalm 34. Uh, One of these examples is that if you look at Psalm 34, probably something you would never recognize in English is that Psalm 34 was originally written as an acrostic poem. An acrostic poem is where basically you start each line or each verse with a different letter of the alphabet. So in Hebrew, you would start the first line with the letter Aleph, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Then you would start with Beit, then Gimel, then Dalit. And you go through each and every verse with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, the challenge is when you try to bring that over into English, it's very difficult because just because it starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet doesn't mean you're going to easily find a word in English that, that is the equivalent. Uh, furthermore, you also have the fact that Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. The English alphabet has 26. And so no matter how you try to do this, you're going to lose something in translation because of the form of the poetry. But the good news for us is this. Even though we're going to miss maybe some features of the original as we translate it to English, we're not going to miss the heart of the message that David wanted to communicate when he wrote this psalm. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to read this psalm together and we're going to reflect on the great truths that we find in it. So let's read now Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. And delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many good days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. 
He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, but those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now, as I read and as you listened, I hope that you picked up some of the main themes that run all throughout this psalm. Uh, You probably heard these things repeated. This is a, a call to worship. So David is calling people to worship God because of who God is and what God has done. He uses this language at the beginning of the psalm. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. And he invites everyone. He says, magnify the Lord with me. Come, let us exalt his name forever. And David kind of lists some of the reasons why we should praise the Lord, why we should exalt his name. He says, let's exalt the Lord because I cried out to the Lord when I was in trouble and the Lord rescued me. The Lord saved me. The Lord delivered me. The Lord redeemed me from all that I was going through. And David continues this theme. He talks about how we can trust the Lord, how we should worship the Lord because when we put our trust in him, we will never be put to shame. And when you read through the psalm, you notice it's a longer psalm. David is going to repeat these different things over and over again. Remember, he has 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet to work with. And he's going to make full use of each and every one of those letters because he wants to really impress upon the people who are listening just how important these truths are. That God is worthy to be praised because he rescues his people. When his people cry out to him, God hears their cries And he responds, and those who worship him, those who rely on him, will never be put to shame. Now, usually when we read through the Psalms, the best way that we can kind of dig into what's there is to just look at the words in the Psalm for themselves. In other words, it would be just to kind of read and reread and and just kind of pour over these words time after time after time, just to really solidify for ourselves what's being said. And, and usually that's kind of all that we can do because it's hard sometimes to place the Psalms in their context in the life of the writer. Uh, usually when we look at the Psalms, there's not much information given about the circumstances surrounding its competi- composition. Uh, for example, if you look at Psalm 35 uh, and you just kind of look at the beginning of this Psalm, it only says to us, of David. In other words, the only information we're given about Psalm 35 is that it's written by King David. Uh, Psalm 36, we get a little bit more, but not much more. It says, to the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. And so Psalm 36, it tells us it's, it's a psalm that's meant to be sung by a choir. And it was written by David, who was a servant of the Lord. Again, when we go through the Psalms, most of the time we're either going to get, you know, what kind of psalm it is, where it's supposed to be sung, what kind of instruments are supposed to be played with it. And sometimes we'll also get the name of the person who wrote the psalm. But when you turn to Psalm 34, you'll notice we get a little bit more detail. It says this, of David. So David's the author of this psalm, but it says more than that. It says, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. One of the really neat things about Psalm 34 is that when we look at the context into which the psalm was written, the psalm comes alive for us in a way I think we would miss if we were just looking at the words themselves. Now, you might be thinking, you know, how in the world would that description really shine any light bulbs onto this psalm, right? Probably when I read that short description about David changing his behavior before Abimelech, probably not many of you were sitting there thinking, oh yeah, it all makes sense now. You know, everything, it's so clear what David is trying to communicate because of that reference. 
And and you might be asking the question, well, how is this going to shed light onto this psalm? How is this going to help us to further understand and appreciate the things that David is writing about? And the answer to that is because this event in David's life is meant to be seen part of the larger story of David's life leading up to these things and, and even following these things that we read about here. And for us, what we can do is actually go back and look at that larger story to see how everything fits together. In some ways, you can think about the beginning of Psalm 34 as kind of like an inside joke. Uh, Not that it's humorous at all, but what, what I mean by that is when you have an inside joke with someone, usually what happens is you can say one phrase or even one word and, and the people that are inside this joke will be able to, from that one word or one phrase, think about a whole situation or think about a whole story that's humorous for you as a group. In the same way, we have just this one phrase, this one scene from David's life. But for those who kind of know the whole story of David's life, this gives great context to the things that David writes here in Psalm 34. And so what we want to do now is just take a look at that larger story and see the events leading up to this psalm being written. So if you want to actually right now, you can turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel. Uh, Probably a good place for you to camp out for now is 1 Samuel chapter 21. And we'll be looking at different verses that are there. But uh, for right now, I'll just say this. The psalm is written by David. David is probably most popularly known in the Old Testament because he was the king of God's people. Uh, David was probably the most famous king of Israel in Israel's history. And most people know David as David the king. It's important to recognize, though, that when David wrote this psalm, he was not yet the king of God's people. You see, David's journey to the throne of Israel, it's kind of this long and twisting journey. Uh, It's not this straightforward, you know, David's announced king, David becomes king. There's this kind of long story, and it's only after trials and tribulations that David actually takes the throne and begins to reign over God's people. It all started one day when Samuel, who was a prophet, came to the house of David's father. He came to Jesse's house and he told Jesse, Jesse, can you gather all your sons together? I'm going to anoint one of them to be the next king over the nation of Israel. And so Jesse's delighted in this and he says, yes, absolutely. And he gathers his sons together. He starts with the oldest and kind of works his way down. He lines them all up and he says, Samuel, here are my sons. Anoint whichever one you want to be the next king of Israel. And so Samuel begins, he kind of starts with the oldest, who's the tallest and the strongest. And he looks at him and says, no, God hasn't chosen this one. And one by one, he goes through all these sons of of Jesse. And Jesse had a lot of sons. And one by one, he says, not this one, 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 until he gets to the end of the list. And Samuel says, okay, none of these have been chosen by God to be the next king. And uh, Jesse says, well, why have you come then? And Samuel says, well, do you have any other sons, any sons at all? And he says, well, there's one that's left. He's the youngest. He's the weakest. His name is David. He's out in the fields with the sheep. And Samuel says, go and find David. And David is brought in. He stands before Samuel and Samuel says, this is the one whom I will anoint as king over God's people. Now, this is obviously a major turning point in David's life, but it's, it's not a straightforward moment because there's a complication in all of this. The complication is that Saul is the current king of Israel when all this happens, and Saul has no intention of giving the throne to David. Uh, Saul does not want to stop becoming king, and furthermore, he wants his own son, Jonathan, to reign after he dies. And so the idea of David becoming king is something that Saul doesn't want to happen whatsoever. 
Now, for the first moments after this, the first years after this, Saul, of course, doesn't know that David's been anointed king, and so he tolerates David just fine. But then something starts to happen. We see David being gifted by God with all kinds of abilities, military abilities, leadership abilities, and David begins to rise to a place of prominence within the nation of Israel. So much so that when people are singing praises to King Saul and talking about all the thousands of of people that Saul has defeated in battle, they also add a second verse and they say, and David has killed tens of thousands in battle. And Saul hears the people praising David for all these things that he's done. And and Saul becomes jealous, he becomes resentful, and he becomes paranoid. And Saul makes it his mission to put David to death so that David can't take the throne from him. And David recognizes this. We actually get a a glimpse of a, a conversation between Saul and his son Jonathan, just kind of showing us how serious Saul was about all of this. We read this in 1 Samuel chapter 20. Uh, verses 31 to 33. Uh, This is what Saul says to his son, Jonathan. He says, as long as David, the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And so Jonathan goes to David, not to capture him, not to bring him to be put to death, but to warn him to flee. And this is exactly what David does. And you got to think about David in this situation, just the dissonance that he's probably experiencing at this moment where he goes from being the anointed king of Israel. He goes from being a captain in the army, a military leader, someone who's even defeated the giant Goliath previous to this. And now he's a fugitive on the run. Now he's wandering. Now he's, he's got no place really to, to live in Israel because the king with the most resources, the king with the control of the armies has personally decided that he wants to put David to death. And so David basically says, I have no choice. I need to flee. I need to get away. And so David decides he's going to have a little bit of a plan. He says, where's the one place that I can go that Saul's going to have the most trouble getting to me? And he comes up with a pretty good plan. At least it seems to be a good plan. He says, I'm going to go to the land of the Philistines. Now, the Philistines, you might remember that name. Goliath was a Philistine. The Philistines were enemies of the nation of Israel. And you might think, why would David go to the Philistines if they're enemies? Well, that's exactly why David does go to the Philistines. Because he knows that if he goes to the land of Philistia, Saul can't bring his armies there because that would be seen as an act of war. Right? The king of Philistia is never going to let Saul come without a fight. And so David thinks, if I go to Philistia, Saul can't get to me. I'm going to be safe relatively. And I can kind of just live in obscurity until maybe a later date when I will be actually become the king of Israel. It's a fairly good plan. The only problem is David doesn't realize how well known he is even in the land of Philistia. And it's not long before the people of the land come to the king and tell him, tell him that David is living in their land and that they should do something about it. We read about this now in the next chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 11. It says this, And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. 
Now, it's interesting what they say here because a, a couple of things we should take note of. They say, is not this David the king of the land? And the answer is, well, technically, no, he's not the king of the land at this point. Saul is still the king of the land, but it's interesting that even in the land of the Philistines, they recognize the trajectory of where things are headed. They recognize that David will one day become king. And they, they say, you know, they're singing his praises. Saul has struck down his thousands, David his tens thousands. And what's interesting is that's the same song that they sang that made Saul so jealous. And now the people of Philistia, they're saying, this is, the, this is David who's going to become the next king. We need to do something about this. Now, a, a quick note about the name Achish. So you notice that they came to Achish, who was the king at this time. This is the same person that, we were, that is referred to at the beginning of Psalm chapter 34. Now, Psalm 34, it says of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out. Uh, now we're reading about someone named Achish. And the reason for this is because the word Abimelech, or the name Abimelech, is Hebrew for my father is the king. Abi means my father, Melech means king, so Abimelech, my father is the king. This is a fairly common name that was used for people who were of a kingly line. So some people would have called him Abimelech. His father was the king. That was true. Uh, other people would have called him by his given name of Achish. And it seems as though these names were both used for this same person. Regardless of what name we call him by, this person poses a great threat to David. Because again, Saul doesn't want David alive because he's going to take the throne of Israel. Achish doesn't want David alive because he will also take the throne of Israel. And so we read about David's response when he recognizes the situation going on in verse 12. It says this, And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And so at this point, David recognizes so much for finding security in the land of the Philistines. I need to think of something to try to get out of this situation. And if you think about his options, he's kind of running out. He has no place in Israel that he can go to. Now in, in Philistia, he doesn't really have a place. And, and so you've got to ask yourself the question, what would the, what would the man who slayed Goliath, what would he do in a situation like this? What would the anointed king of God's people do in a situation like this? What would a mighty warrior who slayed tens of thousands in battle, what would he do in a situation like this? Well, actually, what we read about what David does is quite surprising. Read with me now in verse 13. It says, So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let the spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? You see, what David does is he just simply pretends to be out of his mind. He pretends to be a madman. He changes behavior, his behavior before Achish. And Achish looks at him and says, this man is no threat of being king over Israel. This man is no threat to me. Don't pay attention to him. Don't bother with him. Let him go on his way. Now, on the one hand, you say, well, David, that's a brilliant plan. And we give him a little bit of an applause because how, how could you think of something so brilliant? But on the other hand, remember, this is, is probably not an easy moment in David's life. This is a, a humbling moment. We, don't, we might even say a humiliating moment for David. Right? This, is, this is David who's mighty in battle. This is David who's the anointed king. This is David who is going to be the leader of God's people. And he resorts to 
acting like a madman, of completely throwing himself on God's mercy. Because if this plan doesn't work, David doesn't have a chance. And so David says, I'm going to basically just throw myself on the mercy of God. I'm going to humble myself in this way. And if it works, praise God. If it doesn't work, really I don't have any other options but to trust in God to get me through this. And it's just amazing seeing David humble himself in this way. We saw this earlier in David's life, though, didn't we? When David killed Goliath, remember, he didn't boast in his own strength. What he said was, the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. And this is something that David recognizes in this moment. And and this is, of course, the event that leads him to write the things that he writes in Psalm 34. And I think when you look at David's life, there's lessons that he learns in this season, the season of, of being a fugitive, the season when he doesn't have any power, the season when he doesn't have control of the military, the season when he's just basically helpless in terms of his own resources and fully relying on God. This is a season where David learns some of the most profound lessons in his life. This is the moment, of course, when he writes Psalm 34 and he can talk about this poor man cried out to God and God heard his cry. The Lord hears his servants when they cry out to him and the Lord delivers them. The Lord rescues them. David had just experienced these things. And I think some of these lessons, if David hadn't gone through these things, he wouldn't have learned these lessons in the same way. And there's also a sense in that that if David hadn't experienced these things, he wouldn't be able to actually impact some of the people that he later impacts in his life. Because if you continue reading the story in 1 Samuel, David, he comes to Philistia with just a very few men, but he doesn't remain alone there. He gathers a group of people around himself, and these are likely the people that he has in mind when he speaks in Psalm 34. Uh, Listen, though, to 1 Samuel 22, the continuation of this story. After the events that we just read, we hear about the group of people that surround David. Uh, 1 Samuel 22, verse 1 to 2. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there with him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. So you can just picture them, can't you? David and his band of misfits all together huddled in this cave. You have here the distressed, you have the indebted, you have the bitter in soul. Basically, if you look at the world and say, who are the people that don't really have a place within society? Who are the people that feel like they don't belong? Who are the people that feel like they have no hope? Those are the kind of people that David is attracting because they look at David and say, he can relate to what we're going through. David is on the run. He has no place of belonging. He's being hunted. He's being afflicted. He's being persecuted. And because of that, he actually draws a crowd of people who were experiencing similar things. You notice probably when we read Psalm 34, David's speaking to a group of people. Uh, in the beginning verses, <clears throat> it says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Right? He's calling people to magnify God with him. He says, let us exalt his name together. Now, if we were just reading this psalm by itself, we might assume, well, this is just a call to anyone. It's to nobody in particular. But when we read it in the context and we see the context in what David wrote this psalm, we recognize that the people he's calling to worship with him are the same people that are described here in 1 Samuel 22. He's calling to the distressed, 
He's calling to the downcast. He's calling to the people who have no place in this world. And he's saying, come and worship God with me. Uh, Look at verse 18 again of of Psalm chapter 34. David even explicitly says this. He says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Right? He's speaking to the brokenhearted. The Lord saves the crushed in spirit. He's speaking to the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. See, David is speaking to this group of 400 and he's giving them these messages that they desperately need to hear. And they're willing to listen to David because David has been through some of the same things that they've been through. They're willing to listen to David because they know his life backs up what he's saying. This isn't David being naive. This isn't David being idealistic. This isn't David who's out of touch with reality. This is someone who's experiencing life, who's experiencing hardship, who's experiencing affliction, but who's called out to God and God has answered him and he has a testimony to share of that experience. You see, there's things that are true no matter who says them, right? There's, There's a sense in which if something's true, it shouldn't matter who says that thing. It's true regardless of who says that. We, we would all probably hopefully agree with that to, to a certain extent. But we also recognize that there's certain things that it kind of matters who says them. Right? There's certain things that it's, it's true, but we'll probably take it more serious if this person says it compared to this person. There's some truths that we resist a little bit. We push back against depending on the person who's speaking to us. When I was younger, we used to have Christmas dinners and, and you know, Christmas dinners would often be with uh, family and sometimes friends as well. And would be you know, grandparents, cousins, aunts and uncles. And, and oftentimes, like I said, there'd be friends of the family. So you know, someone would invite a close friend and, and they'd experience Christmas dinner with us. And one of the people that often showed up at our Christmas dinners was someone named Tracy. Uh, Tracy was a good friend of one of, my, one of my uncles. And Tracy was just a great person to be around. Uh, Tracy was always so kind to us as we were kids, and Tracy always had the best stories to tell. Uh, Tracy would tell incredible stories of just the amazing things that she did in her life. She'd talk about uh, whether it was downhill skiing or hiking in the Himalayas or sailing and, and sailing competitions in the ocean. She would tell these incredible stories. And we'd listen and we'd be amazed. And one of the things that made these stories so amazing, as Tracy told them, is that uh, Tracy is a quadriplegic amputee. What that means is that she was born without fully formed limbs, uh, without arms and legs. And yet what was so amazing is Tracy would tell these story after story of overcoming obstacles to accomplish and do amazing things. And she would tell us, you know, how exactly could she downhill ski? And she'd talk about the mechanisms and how that worked out. And she'd tell us about sailing and some of the ways that she would kind of make it so that she could do all these incredible things. And Tracy continues to do incredible things. One of the things that she does right now as well is she does motivational speaking. And it's really neat to see that she gets opportunities to go all around the world and to speak a message to countless crowds. She, she talks to all kinds of people in all kinds of circumstances. And she talks about overcoming obstacles to accomplish great things. Now, you can imagine when Tracy comes on stage and she talks about overcoming obstacles to accomplish great things, people sit up and they pay attention. Because they look at Tracy's life and they say there's something about her life that gives validity to the message that she's sharing. 
Now, if you think about it, I could take the script that Tracy uses and I could memorize the script and I can memorize her speeches and I could go and stand in front of crowds and I could talk about overcoming challenges and doing amazing things. And there might be some people who say, yeah, it was inspiring, but I imagine there would be a lot of people that might push back and say, well, James, you, know, you don't even know what I'm going through. How can you talk about these topics? Right? How, can you, how can you say that you know what it's like to, uh, you know, to experience this thing or to experience that? You don't know what I'm going through. I, I don't actually think I'm going to accept what you have to say about this. If I took the message that Tracy was sharing and I shared it myself, it would be very easy to push back and dismiss what I have to say. But when Tracy shares this message, and when people look at her life experience and they see the things that she's done and the obstacles that she's overcome, that's a very hard message to dismiss. It's very difficult to push back and say, well, you don't know what I've gone through. Well, yeah, she's gone through some incredible things herself. People sit up, they pay attention when Tracy speaks because of what she's gone through. And I think actually we see something similar here in Psalm 34, where you have a group of people that if there's ever going to be a crowd that's going to push back against someone, it's the crowd of the 400 here in the cave with David. Right? These are the indebted, these are the distressed, these are the downcast, these are the distressed in spirit. If there's ever a crowd that's going to be a tough crowd, it's this group of people. Right? These are the people that would say, well, what do you actually know about what I'm going through? What do you actually know about what my life is like? Why should I listen to anything that you have to say? And I think there's a sense in which if this was written by David the king living in luxury with his servants at his beck and call, there might be a bit more pushback from this group. But this is David who's lived life. This is David who's experiencing affliction, who knows what it's like to have no place in society. And it's because of what David's experiencing that people actually accept what he has to say. I sometimes like to kind of picture what it would have been like to be in that cave with David and to be with those 400 and to hear David break out into song and to tell the people that, that he's with that, yeah, the, the righteous, they suffer affliction. But when God's people cry out to him, when the downcast and the downtrodden, when the humble, when they cry out to God, God actually hears their cries and God responds. And God is a God who saves. God is a God who delivers. God is a God who redeems. God is a God who, when we put our trust in him, in the end, we're never put to shame. And I just imagine David raising his voice in song. I imagine the 400 praising God with David and just singing out these words as they recognize that they had nowhere to turn but to God himself. Now, I, I like to think about David and the 400. I, I picture them in the cave and I picture them singing. And then sometimes I picture our churches today in North America. And I think sometimes one of the things that can happen when we, when we do church in North America is that it's very easy for it to look, at least from the outside perspective, like everybody has everything together. Right? And I think sometimes the way we do things in terms of we all dress nice and we go to a nice building and we have nice conversations and we all smile nicely at each other. It's easy from an outside perspective to look at a church and think, wow, it looks like a group of people that basically have it all together. 
It looks like a group of people that have kind of figured this whole life thing out. They really probably don't have any struggles, or at least they don't appear to have struggles from the outside. It looks like a place for those who have kind of put everything together in their lives and don't have any issues that they're still still dealing with. Uh, Maybe this is one of the reasons that you've kind of avoided church in the past. Uh, Maybe this is one of the reasons that you've kind of felt Christianity be off-putting because you think it's just a bunch of people who seem to have it all together. At least they pretend to have it all together. And I just want to say, if that's the impression that you've gotten of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to belong to the church, I want to apologize for that. The truth is, if you got to know us at a deeper level, you'd recognize we all have things that we're going through. We all have issues that we're facing. We all have weaknesses we're trying to overcome. We all have issues in our life that we're we're facing and we're battling every day. You see, there's a sense in which to be part of a church doesn't mean that you have it all together. It means that you recognize that you actually don't have any other choice but to throw yourself on God's mercy. Jesus talked about this when he talked about blessed are the poor in spirit. It's a way of saying blessed are those who recognize their spiritual poverty and recognize that they actually have no hope apart from God. That they have no hope apart from throwing themselves upon God's mercy and seeking his grace. See, we should all be able to resonate with with David and his followers in that cave. We should all feel right at home in that cave, recognizing that, yes, we are the distressed, we are the indebted, we are the downcast. We are those who desperately need to call out to God and to experience his salvation, his mercy, his grace, his redemption. But maybe you've been going to church for a while. Maybe you're playing the game. And I think we can all fall into this trap of playing the game. And the game is when we think that we need to pretend that everything is good in our lives because we think that's what it means to be a good Christian. Uh, we we kind of, like, like I said before, we get dressed up on a Sunday and we make sure we're, we're wearing our best clothes and we're smiling nice and we have good conversations and we, we make sure that if we're going to fight with our spouse, we do that in the car on the way to church or we, if we're going to yell at our kids, we do that before we get there. And when we get to church, we try to pretend like everything's amazing and we don't have anything that we're really dealing with. And if you've been playing that game, I just want to tell you, you don't have to play that game anymore. See, the church is not a place where we pretend that everything's all right. The church is a place where we acknowledge and we declare everything is not all right. It's it's a place where we actually say we need God to show up in our lives. We need God to rescue us and we cry out for salvation. It's a place that should resemble the cave of David and his men where they cry out to God and, and they acknowledge that we desperately need God. We thank God that he hears our prayers. And we call each other to let's worship, let's trust in God because God always comes through for his people in the end. When we put our trust in God, we're never put to shame. And so maybe our our view of church needs to change a little bit. Maybe we need to recognize that it's not about having everything together. It's not about looking a certain way to outsiders or to even insiders or looking a certain way to anybody, but recognizing that we're all people desperately in need of God's grace. And we can sing with one another, come worship God with me. Let me tell you about how I've cried out to him. Let me tell you how I've experienced affliction. I've experienced trouble, but I cry out to God and I know he hears my cry. Let's be people who recognize who we are and face the challenges of life head on, but yet still say, let's worship God together. Let's trust him in whatever we're going through. And let's know that when we put our hope in him, We're never put to shame. 
Let's pray together. So, Father, we just thank you that we don't need to pretend. Father, we thank you that we can come to you in our distress. We can come to you in our weakness. We can come to you with all of the issues that we try to keep inside or that we try to keep hidden. And, Father, we thank you that we can bring these to you and we can cry out for grace. We can cry out for mercy. Father, we thank you that because of what Jesus has done on the cross by his death and resurrection, that we can have grace and mercy from you. And so, Father, I pray that we would become a humble people. Father, a people that is is quick to acknowledge where we are weak, where we're quick to acknowledge where we need help. Father, where we'll have a posture, not of, of pretending to have it all together, but admitting where we don't have it all together where we call each other to worship you, to trust in you, to cry out to you. And Father, we pray that you continue to meet us where we're at and that you would continue to bring deliverance, to bring salvation, to bring redemption, and that you would continue to be our God as we worship you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.